Okay, we're off and running. All right. In Lesson 7, Part 3, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Praise God. Most important lesson in the course. <laughs> and they all are, you know. Uh, this really is an extremely important lesson, and I'm hoping to be able to do justice to it. And, um, and again, I'm counting on the fact that each of you have read and gone through the lesson because I'm not going to have time to go through all of it. On the one hand, on the other hand, there's some things here that are so important, I don't want to skip those. I just hope we can get through in the next 45 minutes. In the opening part there, really what he's talking about is type. Pictures that illustrate spiritual truth. And, and you know, to go through sometime, if you ever have time or am so inclined, a beautiful, beautiful study is to get yourself some commentaries or something that might guide you and help you, but to go through the Old Testament looking for Jesus. You'll find him everywhere. And types. Almost everything we read and see throughout the Old Testament is pointing to the Messiah. And is pointing to Jesus. And today we're going to look at the fact that this, this is, he is called the Lamb of God. We know starting with Adam and Eve's sin, we talked about it when we were in the earlier lessons that God killed animals to, to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. Uh, one of the things that I kind of got into a sideline about and, and I tried to come to some conclusion about how to, to reconcile this whole thing I, I looked up the, the word that's translated skin and skins and it's the same word uh, in Hebrew it doesn't that particular Hebrew word um, really doesn't have a singular and plural to it. It's just the word, and I could draw it up here for you, but it's kind of strange Hebrew scribbling I don't understand. Uh, but the reason that I wanted to look at it is because I found some translations that um, talking about uh, where God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of animals is what some think. And others say he covered them with animal skin, singular. Well, I was thinking about that and I was thinking, if it was lambs, and there's no scripture that says it was, but lambs and our goats, they're considered pretty much the same in scripture, um, are smaller animals. They're not like a a bull that would provide enough skin to cover two people. So as I looked at that, I, I just kind of came to the conclusion that the, even if the words aren't there, the, the thrust of most scripture makes you and leads you to believe these were probably skins of lambs. And if so, then it took two of them, one for each. And I think that there's a real spiritual application there. And that is that um, uh, each of us, if we're, and, if, and when you look at the, the uh, 
the offerings made through the Old Testament, each person had to bring an animal for their sin. An animal per person or per sin. So that part of it makes sense to me, yet, especially in the rituals um, uh, performed by the priests in the temple and in the, and, uh, in the tabernacle, um, one animal would be for many. So my conclusion is, and I'll sure say really up front, I have, I looked and looked and looked. And I can't, and I don't know that this is extremely important, I'm just telling you what I studied and where I went. But I can find no exact scripture that says that for Adam and Eve there was an animal slain for each of them. But I'm assuming that that's probably true. And if it is, then it fits with the, the idea that if we were going to be sacrificing to this day animals to cover our sin, we would each have to bring an animal, each of us, an animal for person. Because the blood of one wouldn't have been the blood for two. And yet there are the rituals in the Old Testament where one animal is used. So I don't I throw that out to you just to stir up your mind and cause you a little trouble <laughs> because I couldn't come to a conclusion. But I believe that I'm right about that. I that makes sense to me. It seems logical to me. Uh, but that's the only thing I wanted to really throw out about that. The the uh, the part there about Cain and Abel gets to be real important. And um let me find my Bible. <clears throat> and let's, uh, let's read that, if you don't mind. Just uh, turning your Bible over a few pages to, uh, to Genesis chapter 4. And I'm going to start in verse 3. Well, I'll start in verse 2 there. Genesis chapter 4. Talking about Eve. Uh, bore children. She uh, she bore Cain first, and then verse two says she she bore again this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. There's a lot of confusion over this, guys. A lot of people have, have wondered about this. And the first thing I want to point out for you is you read those scriptures real well, you'll see God is not angry. He's not showing anger. As a matter of fact, he's showing a lot of love and caring. When, when you look at 
at that verse 6, he's simply saying uh, to him, why? Why are you angry? And he's basically saying, I've got the right to accept one and not the other, and there's a reason why. We're going to see here that this, this be, we've already passed two particular types in Genesis before we get to Genesis chapter 4. We've already passed Adam and Eve and the covering and the animals having to die to cover their sin. And that's one type of our, of our salvation. And the other is, is when, when um, um, God says to Satan um, that he's going to be cursed and crawling on the belly, it's 315, uh, that, his will, that he, Satan, will bruise the heel but the other part of it is that he's going to bruise Satan. I forget how that work, how that goes. Three fifteen. Let me look at it right quick. <coughs> he says, "I will put enmity, meaning enemy. Uh, yeah, there'll be enemies between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise your heel." Um, so. That, that then is the first prophecy in the Bible. And then we come here, and this is, I guess, really then the second type that we're shown. But what God is doing here, Cain and Abel, um, they, they jump from being born to adulthood real quick in the next sentence. But they would have known, they would have known from their parents that God had had to kill animals to cover their sin, to cover their neck. They would have known this. So the one brother in bringing the, the skin of an or the blood of an animal, sacrificing an animal, was in keeping with what God had shown was necessary. The other brother bringing the fruit of the ground thought he was doing a good thing. There's a good picture for us there. And that is that we're often as human beings trying to do what we think God wants rather than looking in scripture and following and doing what we know God wants. We think that we can please God by doing things our way rather than doing it his way, and that's precisely what we have here with Cain and Abel. Uh, the one of being obedient and the other one of doing what I think is right. So that's why God was uh, uh, upset with one, but he did not, he was not mean to him. There, and some people think he was, and it's not. Let me see. Uh, I want to skip before we go to the Passover lamb. There's something in the Bible in between, in between Genesis and uh, in between Cain and Abel and the people in Israel or in Egypt. Uh, let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. It's a really an important thing for us here. Genesis chapter 22 and. Um, this is the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. And uh, most of you probably know the story, but Abraham was 100 years old when he begot Isaac. And uh, so 
He had wanted his son and child all of his life. So you can imagine how fond this man was of, of a child that was born when he, the father, was 100 years old. Chapter 22, I'll start reading in verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Ever been tested? And said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Isn't an awful thing? Think about what this man's being told. It's assumed that Isaac here is probably about 13 years old. <laughs> Long enough for a dad to get real close to his son. Love this child. And God's saying, take him and there offer him as a burnt offering. I think almost any man would be going, what? Are you serious? Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. <laughs> Figure that out. God's told him to take his son there and offer him as a burnt offering. He gets up in the morning, and he's going. Strictly obedient, doing just exactly what God had told him to do. And yet here, just a few verses later, he sends it to this man, a man the boy will come back. Wonder what he had in mind. I thank you. I think he must have known God pretty well. Verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Here's a verse you ought to mark in your Bible. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. <laughs> Amazing faith this man had, and he had a, must have had an enormous knowledge of God. Previous, as you read Genesis, you see that Abraham been walking with God for a long time. He's been obeying God for a long time, but Abraham's also a human being. He made a ton of mistakes along the way. Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood and Abraham stretched out his hand 
and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You see a type there, fellas? Your son, your only son. Does that, that remind you of something else? Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, and I'm going to give you the word so you really know this. The, the Hebrew word there is Jehovah Jireh. I wish that I had an opportunity somewhere along the line with a bunch of you folks to be able to get into the names of God. But Jehovah Jireh means the Lord will provide. The Lord provides. That's what Jehovah Jireh means. So Abraham called that name there. He said, the Lord will provide. As it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Do you guys know what Mount Moriah is? If it isn't exactly, and may not be, where the cross was, it's very close. Mount Moriah is just outside the city of Jerusalem. I think that even though there isn't scripture or any other scientific or historical thing to tell us this, but it seems to me pretty obvious that where this occurred is exactly where Jesus took his son. Only there was no substitute for his son. He offered his son. God, in essence, killed his son in the same place as an offering. God provided the lamb. Who's the lamb? It's God's. From there, we're going over to the Passover. I'm not going to spend an awful lot of time there because I want to get to something else. A couple of things that I want to point out for you about the Passover lamb is, um, is one of the things that they had to do. Um, I'm, not, I'm not going to go there. If you want to read it, it's in Exodus chapter 12. But one of the things that I want to point out to you there is that these people were to take uh, a lamb for each family. And if the family was too small, then their neighbors could be in on sharing this particular lamb. But they had to choose a lamb that was without spot or blemish. It had to be perfect. It had to be a perfect lamb. And then God said that they had to take this into their house and keep it for four days. Why do you figure God wanted them to take this lamb into their house and keep it for four days? So they get attached to it. So they get attached to it. Get attached to it. We're going to kill something here, but it's not just going to be a random thing. This is a baby lamb, and, 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 and you're going to get attached to it. 
You're going to learn to love it. Why? Why, why, would, why did God want that? To show you how much he loves his son. Exactly. See, one of the things that we want to always remember as we study God's word, I consider two things of extreme importance. And that is that in reading the Bible, my goal and I hope your goal is to get to know God. To really get to know him. And one thing that's prevailing there, and that's the second thing that I always look for, and it's always there, is love. God is all about two things. God is about relationship, and he's about love. And basically what he's doing when he's telling these people to keep that little lamb in their house for four days, he wants them to form a relationship with him. Good morning, kiddo. And you guys need to know, I've told her and I'll tell all of you, that this is great. If you're serving somewhere else and you can't get to class on time and you want to come in late, then that's fine. Welcome. God bless you. We're glad to be here, Rachel. So I won't linger there really any longer with the Passover lamb. There's one other type that I will touch on there. And that is, is uh, where, when they killed this lamb, you guys tell me, where were they supposed to put the blood? The blood from this lamb. On the, well, where on the door? Above and on each side. Do you see the cross? See? There's a type there. It's showing us a picture of the cross. And the blood above the door mantle and then on the sides. And um, so that's a type that we just, we don't want to miss that. Uh, and, and looking at the Passover lamb. Now, I want to... Uh, as we're turning the page here, I want to share a couple of things with you. I hope you want mine. I brought a couple of things that I want to read to you because it simply does a better job than I can do. So I'll just read this to you. Every once in a while, a ewe will give birth to a lamb and reject it. There are many reasons she may do this. If the lamb is returned to the ewe, the mother may even kick the poor animal away. Once a ewe rejects one of her lambs, she will never change her mind. These little lambs hang their heads so low that it looks like something is wrong with its neck. And the problem is its spear is broken. These lambs are called bummer lambs. And where we often get the term, you ever heard the term, oh man, that's a bummer. That's pretty much where the, that term comes from, referring to the bummer lambs. It happens not in every flock and not all the time, but anybody that raised sheep will tell you every once in a while there will be a you that will reject her lamb and, and that lamb is broken, broken hearted. Unless the shepherd intervenes, the lamb will die, rejected and alone. So do you know what the shepherd does? He takes that rejected little one into his home, hand feeds it, and keep it warm and by the fire. And he will wrap it in blankets and hold it to his chest so the burner can hear the heartbeat. Once the lamb is strong enough, the shepherd will take it back in the field with the rest of the flock, but that sheep 
never forgets how the shepherd cared for him when his mother rejected him. When the shepherd calls for the flock, guess who runs to him first? That is right, the bummer sheep. He knows his master's voice intimately. It is not that the bummer lamb is loved more. It just knows intimately the one who loves it. It is not that it is loved more. It just believes it because it has experienced that love that the others haven't. You know what, a book here, you'll see how old this book is. I've had this book for many years. I recommend it. I'm pretty sure it's still in French by, by Dr. Philip Keller. It's called A Lamb Looks at the Lamb, a, a Layman Looks at the Lamb of God. Mr. Keller uh, was born in Africa, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and they raised sheep. So he, he's got several books. He's got one of, one of his books is... Um, uh, a Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm is the name of that book. But this, this particular book is A Layman Looks at the Lamb of God. I want to read for you a little bit. Incredible as it may sound, the responsibility for establishing a bond of affection and oneness between God and a sheep gone astray has been upon the Lamb of God. He it is who comes to seek and to save the lost and to draw them back and does in that so that's the picture that Jesus shows us over and over again uh, in in the gospels where Jesus is talking he talks often about the lamb and if one is lost he leaves the 99 and goes and finds the one that's lost and so forth in the traditional life of the eastern shepherds the stray sheep were always retrieved and gathered up by the shepherd's pet lamb wouldn't necessarily be a, a bummer lamb, didn't have to be, but the shepherd always has a pet lamb. He's the one that put the bell on. Every shepherd owned a special hand-reared pet lamb who was considered almost as affectionately as his own children, like a veritable shadow. Wherever the shepherd went, the pet lamb followed. Wherever he walked, the lamb walked. And whenever the shepherd set out into the wild pastures, the upland range, or rough hill country to gather his stray stragglers, full responsibility for their return rested on the pet lamb. It was the pet lamb who came alongside the lost ones, who fed side by side with them, who called to them, who influenced them to follow him, gently back to the master's fold, a picture of Jesus Christ, isn't it? It was the pet lamb who at the close of the day, as the sun set over the western hills, came home in the master's footprints, faithfully bringing the strays with him. The term bellwether refers to this special lamb who often wears a bell, bringing the stray sheep back to the fold Back to the shepherd. The, the divine bellwether is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Even out of the most difficult circumstances to which our own waywardness and sinfulness and selfishness have brought us, he gently but firmly nudges us in the right direction. In the love and compassion and care, he comes to call us back to God, our Father, and home where we belong.
Praise God. Praise God. Well, let me just continue with the lesson. We've got some time, but I wanted to get that in, in there for you because it's really important for us to see how this love situation works. You know, I worked, I worked on a cattle, I was born and raised on a cotton farm and cattle ranch, and, uh, and then I worked for a few years with C2 Cattle Company in Oregon, I, regular cowboy job. I can't say we were real gentle with the cattle. It wasn't a matter of calling to them and, come on, baby, no, no. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> and you round them up and drive them off and... Uh, not so with sheep. Not so with sheep. They're a different kind of animal. Matter of fact, I don't have time to get into it, but if you don't know, sheep are stupid. <laughs> they really are. They'll destroy their pasture land. They have to be led to everything. And you know what? That to me, shows a real good reason why God chooses lambs to show us who? Us. We're real dumb. <laughs> yes, we are. Yes, we are. We, it, really, it really takes a lot to get it through our thick head that we need to follow the shepherd. That we need to do what we're being told to do. We need to go where we're being led. We're not supposed to go off and do everything our own way. Because when we do, we're fi fixing to get ourselves in a lot of mess. So there's a lot of good reasons why a, a lamb is so portrayed in the Bible. Uh, but then there's one of these lambs, one of them, just one, but one of the lambs that's been in all this world was perfect. <laughs> just one, but he was perfect. I want to get to one other thing, and I've got time to do it. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Leviticus. Go to Leviticus chapter 16. And I'm just going to start reading verse 1. I'm going to skip a little bit through this chapter. It's a very long chapter. But there's some things here that are vitally important. Give me a second. Leviticus chapter 16, I'll start reading in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil. And guys, I want you to Put your thinking caps on for a minute here. Uh, we read, when we, when we read about the crucifixion of Jesus and the, and the earthquake came and, and the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. You remember that? All right. Uh, that's really significant. And here it kind of gets to the root of it. See, the Lord told Moses to tell Aaron, you don't go inside there just any old time. before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die for I will appear in, a, in the cloud above the mercy seat 
Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. And he shall put the holy linen, linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he will wash his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and to make atonement for himself and his self. I'll pause just a second and let you know that, see, one of the reasons, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself, um, but this idea of the fact that, the, that that veil is torn and you and I can go in at any time, it's because our sins are forgiven. This high priest could only go into this place once a year. And when he did this once a year, he had to go through these rituals because he had to, first of all, make an offering for his own sins. Because he was a sinful human being, just like the people he was about to represent. So we just need to really get the idea that this is no small thing lest he die. There is not scriptures for this, but there is historical data to show that what I'm about to tell you is true. And that is, is that when the high priest did go in behind the veil once a year, he tied a long, like a rope sash to himself. You know why? Because if he hadn't done everything right, if he hadn't done the sacrifices and so forth for his own sins right. If he was harboring anything in his heart, he was going to die in there. But there couldn't nobody go in to get him because they'd die too. So they wore this rope so that they could be pulled out. So we just need to know that this is before Almighty God, what we're talking about here when going into that mercy seat this is a big deal. Strict, strict things that had to be observed. Verse 8. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the, the, for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. And the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. I'm going to skip there a little bit. And the next few verses really have to do uh, with uh, uh, making atonement for this whole area called the holy place. And come down to verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bringing its blood inside the veil to do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and to sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place. 
and I'm going to skip again. And I want to get all the way down to verse 21. Because he's, he's talking about the things in those verses I'm skipping, about what he does in there and so forth. And then at verse 21, he's basically through in there. He's done making atonement for the holy place, it says in verse 20. And in verse 21, it says, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all of their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and he shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Now, the reason for the suitable man is to make sure that this goat is taken far enough away that it ain't coming back. Okay? Can you tell me the significance of this, guys? Take their sins away and they're never coming back. Amen. Amen. And we we can go. Psalm, let me look for the psalm. I've got my notes messed up. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. People talk about the sea of forgetfulness. I'll point out something very important for you. The sea of forgetfulness and that terminology does not exist in the Bible. But there is a reference to it. And the reference is in Micah 7, verse 19, which says, you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And that's where that terminology has come from. So here's, here's the thing, guys, for us. That... This, this scapegoat is so important for us to see that not only has this lamb been offered, its blood shed and its blood sprinkled on the mercy seat for the atonement of sin, and what a picture that is of Jesus Christ when he was crucified and the fact that the veil is torn. The veil is torn because at least in a figurative sense, what has happened to that mercy seat is that it has been covered with the blood of Jesus. Perfect sacrifice. These sacrifices are, were not perfect. They had to be as close as possible, but they weren't perfect. It wasn't the perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice had to be a sinless human being. So the blood of the one goat that, whose blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat is now a picture of Jesus Christ and his blood on that mercy seat. And the reason the veil is torn wide open is so that you and I don't need a high priest. We don't need a high priest to go in once a year and make atonement for our sins. Jesus Christ, the real high priest, has done that once and for all. The veil is gone. We don't, we, you and I have the right to come right before the throne of grace. We'll, we've, we've talked some and we'll talk a lot more about our standing before God and the fact that uh, when God sees us, he sees us as in Christ and what he sees is that blood on the mercy seat. But the other goat is also important, vitally important for us to be able to be assured, to have an assurance in our soul 
that our sins are no longer remembered by God. They're gone. He took them as far as the east is from the west. He's cast them into the sea. And, and you know, while I, I know that it's important for us to be repentant, and maybe even especially for a person like me to continue to be repentant over sin. On the other hand, God doesn't want us living in that and, and living in that day by day and letting that past life haunt us. He's forgotten it. And oftentimes I'm reminded, if I want to bring up my past to God, I, I can hear him say, it's been long enough, I've been doing it long enough, I can hear God say, you've got to bring that up again. <laughs> it's gone, it's forgotten, it's not there. I've got just a few minutes, just enough left. I want, to, I want us to turn to Hebrews. And I'll just conclude with this. Let me see if I've uh, written down here. I thought I did. Exactly where I wanted to read. All right, well, basically, it's, it's pretty much all of Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> so, folks, I've got five minutes. I'll, I'll just, I'm just going to read to you, and I hope I can get through it here. It's important. Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In bird offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, and you understand now, this is Jesus talking to the Father. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he might establish the second. By that will we have been by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. And by one offering, he has perfected forever 
those who are being sanctified. Guys, I'd like you to go ahead and finish reading that whole thing sometime. I, I want to I want to make one statement as we close this. <clears throat> all of the things that we just went through and all of the things that we talked about <clears throat> right up to the reading out of Hebrews has been from the Old Testament. You understand that all Jewish children, especially those who had um, pious mothers and fathers, those who were strict Jews studied. They knew Jesus and his brothers, Matthew and John and Peter, all of them had grown up being students of what we call the Old Testament. John the Baptist would have known everything that we've just talked about. He knew it all. And he also knew that this lamb that drew others to him, the lamb of the shepherd, the one that was loved, the one that, had the, that was the bellwether, the one that had been closest to the shepherd, this is the one that the Father would send. So when, when John turned, he's standing in the middle of a river, and he sees Jesus coming on the banks. He knew him. He was his cousin. And he said, well, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Meaning what? Meaning this lamb is the one that's closest to the heart of God. This is the lamb that's one that's sent to bring the lost ones into the fold. This is the one that loves the, the shepherd enough to follow his every footsteps. This is the one that's been held in his arm. This is the lamb that belongs to God. This is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 